you picked up the notes, I hope you have. hope everybody has them. <clears throat> You'll see that we're going to be in Matthew <clears throat> first. We'll be in Matthew a fair amount today, actually. Today we're going to start a new segment of what's turning into a five-part series. I have a sneaking suspicion it could become six if I'm not careful this coming week. <laughs> but uh, the deeper I get into this, the more questions I have. But uh, why don't we say one more word of prayer specifically for, for the teaching time. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for the time to come together as believers in Christ and to worship you. We thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have granted us new life and faith and brought us into your kingdom through Jesus Christ, through faith in his saving work on our behalf, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to your right hand. It is our prayer, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will work in our hearts and minds now and enable us to understand your word as we should. I ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You'll recall that over the past couple of weeks, we've uh, sought to answer the, or understand rather, the Bible's teaching concerning the kingdom of God, at least get a broad understanding of it. In the process, we found that the Bible speaks of the kingdom as both a present reality um, and also a future reality. Our Lord Jesus brought the messianic kingdom of God with his first coming, but the fullness of that kingdom awaits his second coming, we saw. There's a spiritual kingdom now manifested through the presence of the church in the world, but the fullness of the kingdom awaits the future. And today we're going to see that the kingdom of God is already present in what our Lord it is already present in what our Lord Jesus calls this age. And that the future fullness of the kingdom then must await what he calls the age to come. The Bible clearly speaks of these two ages in a number of passages, and we won't get into all the questions about them. Next week, I'll try to take some time to try to consider when did this age begin? There are some people that think that the last days and this age are the same thing. Uh, that doesn't make much sense to me. I think we're going to see that the last day, we're in the last days of this age. But can we, can we, are there any scriptural indications or possible indications of when this age began? Uh, it's clearly been going on for more than 2,000 years at least, this age. In fact, the last days of this age have been going on that long. So it's apparently a pretty long age. So we'll, we'll contemplate that some next week. But um, and, and we're the last days, what they are, um, get a better handle on that. But today we just want to get the concept of this age and the age to come in our minds and, and something of what... Jesus and the apostles meant when they spoke of this age and the age to come. Now, there are, there are some passages that speak of ages, plural, and which seem to maybe even indicate ages before and ages to come. Uh, and maybe we'll look at a few of those next week. But for now, we're going to look at these very clear statements about this age and the age to come and the different ways that these two ages are spoken of, that these are the 
These are the two primary ages we need to be concerned about. If there are other ages, they don't concern us so much as these two, the one we're in and the one that's coming. Um, and so we'll, we'll begin uh, looking through some of these texts. And we'll see that they talk about these ages in different ways. But the first one we'll start with is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Now this is about the unpardonable sin, and, and we don't have time to really delve into what that means. Um, I will just encourage you that if you fear you've committed it, there's really no way you could have. People who have committed this sin aren't afraid that they did it, <laughs> right? So, so when we read this text, don't get scared uh, by it, okay? If 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 because uh, some Christians with weak consciences worry that they might have have uh, committed this sin, and if you're one of those people, the very fact that you're worried about it means you haven't. So don't be afraid as we read this. Beginning in verse 31 of Matthew 12, we read, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There you have it. Um, Jesus is in an age, and he's looking forward to another age this age and the age to come. And again, without getting into the issue of the unpardonable sin, here we see it. Clearly, there's two ages. This age and the one to come, which had to be future to him at the time. Right? There might be some wacky interpreter out there somewhere that says it already came, uh, and then there's another age to come or something like that, but I don't think there's any reason to read such things like that in, especially when we see that Jesus talks about the end of this age, the one he's in, as, as coming when he returns, as we'll see. Another example of our Lord speaking in this manner of two ages may be found in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, and there's a parallel text to this in Luke 18. But in Mark chapter 10, we're told that Jesus answered in Mark 10, 29, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and with children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now here Lord Jesus referred to the current age as this time. Instead of this age, he called it this time. And he contrasted it with the age to come. So it means the same thing as this age, right? This age or this time in contrast to the age to come. There's different ways he can talk about it, obviously. Um, and again, this age to come obviously is a future time. A time when he indicates that we will fully experience the eternal life that is ours through faith in him. Um, to be sure, we have eternal life now. And he's not trying to say here that we don't. But there's a sense in which eternal life is also something future. We know we have eternal life now. There's a number of passages that indicate this. John 5.24 is one of the clear ones. Uh, where Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life. In the Greek there, zoe ionion, it's the same Greek as for eternal life 
in Mark 10, 30 that I read earlier. He has eternal life and he shall not come into judgment but is passed from death into life. He's already passed from death into life. Um, so here we see another now versus not yet tension, don't we? We saw that the kingdom is here now in some sense, but there's a sense in which it's still future. This is true of everlasting life. We have everlasting life now, but there's a sense in which we won't experience everlasting life as we should until the future, in the age to come, uh, at the resurrection. And of course, we know that, that our salvation isn't complete till then because we don't have our new bodies yet. We can't live forever in these bodies. We have spiritual life now that lasts forever. But these bodies are going to die unless Jesus comes back first, in which case they'll be transformed into the glorified bodies with which we can live forever. Can't live forever in these bodies. And so we're not fully saved until the resurrection. We don't have the full experience of everlasting life as the kind of beings God's created us to be, which are embodied spirit beings, not <laughs> disembodied ones. And so that just fills you in a little bit more on you know, the thinking that goes around that. We don't have to time to trace all that out today, but I just wanted to make the point that just because he speaks of everlasting life as something future, it doesn't mean it's not also something present. We see this now, not yet tension. As I, as I pointed out in our previous studies, in many ways when we talk about salvation in the New Testament. And this is just one of, other way that we see this. <clears throat> we have a, a foretaste of what's to come. Yet another example from the teaching of the Lord Jesus may be found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20 in a very interesting statement. Again, it's too, we don't have time to unpack any of these things. It's beyond our purpose because there's, there's so many of these statements say some pretty interesting things, and this is no, no different. In Luke 20, beginning verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, so this must be, that age must be the age to come then. It's a future age. It comes at the resurrection. Neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. Because remember, he's just said they're resurrected. Uh, for they're equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So what he's saying here is that... Um, There'll be no more physical death once you're, once you're resurrected and you're sons of the resurrection. But notice here, um, we clearly see a reference to two ages, what Jesus calls this age and what he calls that age, which must be the age to come in the context because it's associated with the resurrection, the future resurrection. So Jesus thought that the age to come would in some way coincide with the future resurrection, apparently. This means that the age to come was not only future to Jesus when he said this, but it is also future to us because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. And there he's not talking about his resurrection because he's talking about other people who are married and giving in marriage and so forth who will one day not do that anymore in the resurrection. So he's talking about us. He's talking about our future resurrection. So we see here that the age to come didn't come yet. Right? It hasn't come yet. And we're not surprised then to find that the Apostle Paul could also speak of these two ages in the same way. Um, when he spoke of this age, 
He meant the same thing Jesus meant when he spoke of this age. And when he spoke of the age to come, he meant the same thing Jesus meant when he spoke of the age to come. He learned all this from Jesus, remember. Um, Here's a couple of examples from Paul. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, he tells us, uh, speaking of God the Father, he says, He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. It's our theme for worship this morning. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This age and the age to come. It's not like Jesus is given all this authority and power and uh, a name above every other name, only in this age, Paul says. No, but in the age to come as well. That means forever, right? In 1 Timothy, he speaks of these ages again. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, where he has something to say to rich believers. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if you're a Christian who's rich, thank God that he's given you those riches to enjoy, and then ask how Christians ought to enjoy riches. There's a lot in the Bible about that. It involves a lot of giving, too, as it turns out. But uh, then Paul says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. Ah, That's one thing they could do with their riches. Do good. Ready to give. Willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Now here Paul referred to the age to come as the time to come. And he contrasted it with this present age. So it must be the age to come. This is just a reversal of the way where Jesus had previously contrasted this time with the age to come. And he meant this age and the age to come. So these are just different ways they can refer to this time and the time to come or this age and the age to come. But having surveyed the primary passages referring to this age and the age to come where they talk about both of them in these various texts, I think it's helpful also to survey a number of passages which refer only to this age and which make it clear that we are still in this age just as our Lord Jesus and the early church were in this age. It's not like the age that Paul and Jesus were talking about ended, and now we're in the age to come, and that there's another age to come. No. We're still in this age, the one that they were in. And uh, there's no way around just looking at all these texts, right? I could just say, "Here's here's how it is, but then you'd be taking my word for it, and that's not what you should do. You should only take the Bible's word for things. So that's where we're looking at the, the Bible. We're going to begin this part of the study by briefly considering several passages in the Gospel of Matthew which record our Lord's teaching about the end of the age. He spoke of this age, he spoke of the age to come, and he spoke of the end of the age, which must be the end of this age. If he has two ages, this age, the one he's in, and the age to come, and he, spe- and he speaks of the end of the age that we're in, he's talking about this age, right? So when does it end? We have some indications of that. The first of these passages gives us Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this is in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 36. 
Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Speaking of himself there, remember that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the end of the age uh, involves the angels assisting our Lord Jesus in gathering the elect right, to himself and separating out the elect from the non-elect will be judged. So our Lord Jesus places the end of the age at his return and a kind of judgment that will happen then. The same idea is found later in the same passage, beginning in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what it's going to be like at the end of this age. Later, in his gospel, Matthew recorded for us uh, the answers Jesus gave to some of his disciples' questions, which included inquiries about the end of the age. Jesus had been talking about the end of the age, and they want to know more about it, apparently. Right? So in Matthew 24, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 3. <clears throat> Matthew 24, verse 1 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice they equated his coming with the end of the age. And we know why they did that, because we've read some of his previous teaching, right, that, that indicates that's probably the case, right? Without getting into all the eschatological issues that we could get into in Matthew 24, we find that Jesus does refer to the end of the age later on in verse 14 when he says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Well, the end he has in mind there in the context appears to be the end of the age question that had been asked. Or at least I think so. Um, and this tells us that this age will be an age of gospel proclamation. And that leads us to the next passage, which once again comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's the passage often referred to as the Great Commission. 
Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we're told that Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Some, I think the King James might have had the end, end of the world. There might be some translations that do that. Well, the reason for that is they equate the end of the world with the end of the age, I guess. Um, but he's speaking of the end of the age. And then Matthew says, Amen to that. When our Lord Jesus referred to the end of the age, uh, he has to have been referring to what he elsewhere called this age. And what we saw earlier in chapter 13 in Matthew when he referred to the end of the age as the end of this age. So when he says, I'll be with you to the end of the age, he means the end of this age. We know some of the things that are going to happen at the end of this age, this age of gospel proclamation. And Jesus wants us to know he's going to be with us all the way. Because this age will not end until the gospel has gone to all nations. Remember, he said in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel of the kingdom has to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what he says in Matthew 28 is the commission to go do that now as we await the end of the age. So how does a Christian await the end of the age? Well, he or she is about the business of being a witness, a gospel witness. That's how we wait the end of the age. We testify of Jesus until he returns, knowing that he'll be with us all the way. And this promise will sustain us as we come up against opposition to the gospel, which we, we know Jesus and his apostles experienced, and we know we will as well. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in our next passage, opposition to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, beginning verse 18, Paul tells us, For the message of the cross, that's the gospel, right, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And there you see this age and this world uh, sort of compared there. Um, now, there have actually been many such disputers of the gospel in this age, haven't there? And there are going to be many more. But manifestation of God's wisdom through our Lord Jesus has exposed them for the fools that they really are, Paul's telling us. So this is an age, of, this age, he says, is an age of not only gospel proclamation, but of opposition to the gospel. But we shouldn't be too worried by that. Jesus is with us, not only that, but however smart these people seem, remember, the wisdom that we have through redemption in Jesus Christ shows that to be the foolishness that it really is. So be encouraged. You have the wisdom of God. And when people out there in this world try to make you seem foolish for believing the things we believe as Christians, just know in your heart and pray for them because they're the foolish ones. That's what Paul's saying. They treat us like we're the foolish ones foolish ones because the message of the cross is foolishness to them. He says, they're really the foolish ones. 
This is life in this age. One reason that people are so opposed to the gospel and so foolish is that they've been blinded, as Paul says in our next passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, almost all Christian interpreters take the God of this age. They, your, your, uh, your translation has God there with a small g, right? It should. Because the God of this age is the false God who is the devil, right? He's the God of this age. Of the wicked, foolish opposition to the gospel people of this age. He's their real God. See, even an atheist who says he doesn't believe in God, he's got one. It's the God of this age. He's on his team, and he's batting for him, for the devil, whether he or she knows it or not. No, no wonder that Paul also referred to this age as evil in his epistle to the Galatians, as an evil age. Um, this is in Galatians 1, verses 3 through 5 where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out why we need grace and peace so badly. Why we need what he says next. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Here's not just this age, it's this evil age. And having read some of the stuff we've read, we know why. There's a bunch of tares that we're mingled in with in this age, a bunch of wicked people. Uh, there's their father, the devil. There's the God of this age all the time coming after believers. There's constant opposition to us as we live for Christ in this age. Yeah, there's a lot of evil in this age, in spite of the fact that the gospel is here. Paul can call it this present evil age. And he says... He's going to deliver us from that, has delivered us from that, through Christ, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He deserves all the glory because he's the one who's delivered us from this evil of this present age. We have the gospel. We're not blinded. And that's God's doing. Because of Jesus' saving work on our behalf, we're able to stand against the God of this age and all the evil he seeks to perpetrate in the world. Paul has this spiritual conflict in mind as well in Ephesians 6, our next text, where he talks about the darkness of this age and this, the rulers of the darkness of this age. In Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Remember, he's the God of this age. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So this age is an age of gospel proclamation. It's an age of intense spiritual warfare, but it's an age in which, however evil it is, right, we as believers have victory through Christ. That's the kind of spiritual battle he's talking about that characterizes the Christian life throughout this age until our Lord Jesus returns 
a time we await with great hope, as Paul says to Titus in our next text. Titus 2, 11 through 13. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this age will be an age of gospel proclamation, of opposition to the gospel, of much spiritual warfare, and also of constant looking for the return of our Lord Jesus, at which time this age will come to an end and the age to come will be at hand. Based on what we've seen thus far, right? On at least one occasion, uh, only the age to come is mentioned. We've seen a number of passages where this age is mentioned. And some passages where this age and the age to come are mentioned. But with a specific reference just to the age to come, I, I can only find one reference like that, and that was in Hebrews 6. Um, and it's, it's in a passage speaking of false believers who reject the faith. It says something that's true of true believers and also true of false believers while maintaining also that there's a great difference between those two. You'll see what I mean. In Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4, the author writes, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. So he's talked about a group of people that look like they're believers, but aren't. And he says, I'm, I'm uh, confident of better things of you all, though, that you're not like the people I've just described. I think better things of you, things which accompany salvation. So what he's saying is these people he's described who fall away, aren't, they haven't experienced salvation. The things he's describing, however much they look like they might accompany salvation, and they do in us, right? They don't in these false believers. So here's the thing. There, you can taste of the heavenly gift in some way and still, not, and still not have that accompany salvation. You can in some way have become a partaker of the Spirit's work in your heart and life and still in a way that doesn't accompany salvation. You look back at the Old Testament, maybe Saul's a guy like that, right? Um, you could have tasted the good word of God. You could have sat under the teaching of the word 
for months and even years and still have that not accompany salvation. And you can, he says, not only have tasted the good word of God, but of the powers of the age to come. Now this, this uh, gets us back into that now and not yet tension we talked about. We're experiencing the kingdom as a spiritual reality now, even though the fullness of the kingdom hasn't yet come. Well, the powers of that coming kingdom, though, have reached back into our present and have manifested themselves through the power of the Spirit in our lives. So what does he mean by these powers, though? Now, the false believers here, as we've seen, are said to have experienced some of the same blessings that actual believers have experienced. Although these experiences of false believers fall short of things that accompany salvation, we're told in verse 9. That is, although the false believers had experienced some blessing that true believers had experienced, they did not actually experience salvation. One of the things they had in common with true believers we've seen is that they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. But what does it mean? What does it mean? If summarize it again for us, or hopefully our mind's in the right place, what does it mean? Well, I think it's important to look at the preceding context in which he mentions both the word of God and certain powers, plural, that it accompanied the proclamation of the word of God. And this is in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, referring to Jesus, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles. That's the same word for powers later in chapter 6, verse 5. Dunamis is the word in, in Greek. It just means power. And it's plural here as well. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various powers, we could say. In this sense, meaning miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. As William Hendrickson has, has observed, he says, first, note that the author uses the plural form powers that is, they are part of the signs, wonders, and various miracles that he mentioned earlier in Hebrews 2.4. These powers belong to the coming age, but already in this age they are evident. The writer does not say what these powers are, although we note that they are directed toward the advancement of the church throughout the world. Does he have the same powers? Does he have miracles in mind here? That, that all these believers witnessed not only the preaching of the word, they not only heard the word of God proclaimed, but they saw the powers that were evidenced in its proclamation in those early days. And yet, they weren't saved. It didn't accompany salvation in them. We should be clear here that experiencing certain powers of the age to come, such as miracles, at least miracles, right? Does not necessarily lead to saving faith. There's one miracle you have to be, to have experienced to have saving faith. And that's the miracle of regeneration. 
And apparently these people hadn't experienced that. In fact, the author of Hebrews has already also referred to a previous generation who experienced more miracles than perhaps any other in history, including the Hebrews to whom he's writing here. And that was the generation that came out of Egypt. Now think of the miracles they saw, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, wearing shoes for 40 years that didn't wear out, <laughs> you know, manna from heaven, water from a rock on two occasions. Think about all the miracles they had. They had daily miracles, manna. Every day they had a miracle. Every single day for 40 years. Has there been a generation in history that saw more powers of the age to come than that generation? Well, maybe the generation that saw Jesus and the apostles, but I doubt any other. And yet, almost all of them perished. Having tasted of the powers of the age to come didn't save them. Look what he says in Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, this generation in the wilderness didn't enter that rest. They perished. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. And in the context, he's talking about that generation that perished in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they didn't really ever truly believe. They didn't have that gift of the Holy Spirit, faith. So people can hear the word of God and experience many miracles along with it even. Yet still perish in unbelief as some apparently did among the community to whom the epistle of the Hebrews was written. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, we've seen this before. We don't want to see it again. Don't be like those people who perished. And then, of course, he says, I'm confident of better things of you, right? Things that accompany salvation. In this respect, as God's adopted children, we could say that we're actually, in a real sense, children of the future. To be a child of God now is to experience the powers of the age to come. Only in the case of true believers, it's much more than just having witnessed miracles, for example. It's having been born again. Paul says, for example, in Romans 8, 14 through 17, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You, you may have people who are hearing the Word of God and seeing miracles and even look like believers for a time, but in, unless they're led by the Spirit of God, they're not the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Their adoption is a present reality. In several passages in Paul's writing, adoption is a present reality. We're already heirs. We're already adopted children of God. Yet our ultimate experience of adoption awaits the future, the resurrection and the age to come. 
as Paul makes clear in the same context later on in verses 22 and 23. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We're not fully saved until the resurrection again. right? That's when we'll have the fullest experience of what it means to be adopted children of God, to have everlasting life, to be in the kingdom. As I said last week, we live with our feet in two worlds. We live with one foot in, in this age and the other foot in the age to come, so to speak. We've already had the powers of the age to come break into this age and be manifested in the church and in the progress of the gospel. We've already experienced the adoption now that we'll experience in its fullness later. The everlasting life now that we'll only experience in its fullness later in the age to come after the resurrection. So, there's this age and we're still in it because it doesn't end. The end of the age comes with the resurrection. Whenever that happens, the end of the age is coming, right? That's when it's happening. And the age to come then has to be after that or begin then, right? That's our overall eschatological framework. And in some way, the kingdom of God is both in this age, but in its fullness in the age to come. And I'm going to say to you next week, more specifically, that the kingdom of God now is in the last days of this age. That when Jesus came, he not only ushered in the messianic kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, but what we call the last days or the latter times of this age. That's what I'm going to argue next week. And as I said, we'll try to get a handle on, if we can, are there some hints at when this age began? As I put in that chart that I passed out to you, I suspect it began with the the fall and the subsequent promise of salvation to Adam because I have this first and second Adam structure, overall structure that I see in the Bible. We had one representative man and then we had a second one and uh, who ushers in the age to come, right? But it came in two stages. Stage one we're in, which is the last days of this age. That's my argument. However long this age is, could be wrong about the Adam thing. Uh, uh, could be several ages, right, before this age. Some people think they're, that they're equivalent uh, to the various covenantal periods, for example. That's possible. Uh, I'm not going to go to the stake over that. One thing for sure. We're in this present evil age. It doesn't end until Jesus comes back. We're in the same age that Jesus and the apostles were in. Awaiting the same age to come they were awaiting. Or that Jesus is actually going to usher in. For those of us who have experienced a saving faith, well, of course, we know what it's like to have experienced to the fullest the powers of the age to come. We've experienced the greatest miracle of all dead sinners being brought to life, spiritual life in Christ. There is no greater miracle than that. 
The Bible tells us it takes the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, the greatest miracle ever, to give new life to a sinner. So if you're one of those people that says, well, I've never experienced a miracle, you've experienced at least one or you're not a Christian. And it's the most powerful miracle anyone could ever experience. But if you're not a believer, you may have tasted of the powers of the age to come in some way because you've seen miracles around you. You've seen changed lives around you. You've seen the results of miraculous working of God in the believers around you. Don't be like those people that perished in the wilderness, please. Don't be like the kind of people that the author of Hebrews mentioned in Hebrews 6. Because it is very possible to be that close to the kingdom and not be in it. Good news for you is you're still alive and you still have time to receive Jesus Christ. You can do that today. You can bend the knee to him as Lord and receive the free gift of our everlasting life, forgiveness for your sins through faith in Christ who died on the cross for you, who rose from the dead, who is at the Father's right hand, ready to welcome you into his kingdom, even now. Please don't put it off. Because as we found in Hebrews 6, there may come a time when it's too late. You don't want to mess around with that. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your grace. It's my hope that we've gotten a clear overall perspective, sort of eschatological perspective on things, or at least we're beginning to. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to do a good job explaining these things that in some ways I'm struggling with myself to fully grasp. I'm doing the best I can with what you've given me. And any faults in this teaching are mine, and any good that comes out of it is holy of your doing. That's for sure. And so I just pray that however feeble I have been in my attempts to explain things, that your word will accomplish its purpose here in our hearts today. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with a zeal to go out of here, unafraid to live in this present evil age unafraid to stand against Satan and his minions, unafraid to proclaim the gospel because we know that our Lord is with us every step of the way and he will sustain us. We'll give you all the glory for what you do. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention. You're such good hearers of the word.